guardian angels and patron saints, pray for us. Well, during the season of Advent, the Archbishop has requested that throughout all the parishes of the diocese, the priests preach on the basic message of the gospel. As a brief recap, the first point, the first step of hearing the gospel message is recognizing that we are the work of a creator. We are created. And that tells us certain things about ourselves and about God and about the world. God is all good. There is no other God but him. There is no corresponding evil God that is equal and in a perpetual war with him. He is the sole creator. And because he is all good, all of his creation is good. Everything that exists is good. He created it in an orderly way, a paradise, a garden in which we were meant to dwell in harmony with one another, with all creation. And that we've been placed here at this time and in this place to be loved and to love. That is the reason for our existence. And we'll get into what exactly that love looks like and how that's to be understood. But the basic idea is there that we are, we are creatures and here to be loved and to love. Today we're going to focus on the second part of the gospel message. And that is fundamentally that we have been captured. The good creatures that God has made have been taken captive by a power that is opposed to God and seeks our destruction. Now, this is somewhat of a dark point to make. So today, rather in keeping with the nature of the gospel of St. John the Baptist, preaching this message of repentance, we're going to consider what we may call the, the bad news the awareness of the state into which the world has fallen. And this is actually an important part of accepting the good news, is recognizing what is the situation, the predicament that the human race is in. We need to begin with a kind of hopelessness, in fact, if we're ever to be able to escape from the situation. I believe this is what it means to prepare the way of the Lord, to make straight his paths, to attend to pay attention to our situation, the real nature of what we're, what we're bound up in. But there's another secondary, very useful dimension to studying and paying attention to the, to the attacks that we're, that we're suffering, and that's this. We shine a light, God's light, on the hidden tactics and strategies that are used again and again to manipulate and distort the goodness of God's creation what you might call reviewing game film. Coaches will record games and then take their athletes to review that footage and note where did we fail? What was our opponent doing? What were the plays that he ran? How can we better, how can we better prepare for the next game so as not to lose to those tactics? Or you could think of it maybe in terms of that great World War II general George Patton, if you've ever seen that film, um, made, uh, starring George Scott, there's that scene where he's looking out over the battlefield and watching these tanks doing battle in North Africa against the great, very clever 
Field Marshal Rommel. And of course, Patton is watching this whole battle unfold and knows what's happening because Rommel wrote a book about his tactics. And Patton read it. And he used it to beat him. That's what we can do when we study and attend to the revelation of God's word to reveal to us the nature of the battle that we're fighting. But I'm particularly aware during this presentation that presenting this gospel message, my words are weak, my ideas and, and ways of expressing these things always fall short. And in the end, it's only the Holy Spirit that's capable of bringing us to faith to accept these things. So I'd like to invoke the help of the Holy Spirit through the intercession of St. John the Baptist for this, for this message today. So join me in your hearts. God, our Savior, through the intercession of the great precursor, the forerunner to your son, St. John the Baptist, that you would send upon us the Holy Spirit. May the Lord Jesus come to visit each of us, speak to the minds of all, dispose our hearts to faith, and lead our souls to you, O God of mercies. Amen. So if it is the case that we are born into God's world, his creation, as his beloved creatures, today we take stock of the fact that we are born onto a battlefield. We might look around the world and hear that claim that God's creation is good and beautiful and well-ordered, but we see examples of suffering and sin, injustice, death everywhere, and we'd be very reasonable to ask, why is everything so messed up then? The answer to that is because a war is raging. It's raging all around us, and it's been raging since the first moment of our existence. And this war is the result of a very powerful enemy, an enemy of God and of humanity, who goes by many names, but who was first given the name of Lucifer, the light bearer. The Catechism teaches that this creature, and he is a creature, that this creature was at first a good angel, the greatest of all the angels, in fact, but that he and the other demons, though they were in, indeed created good by God, became evil by their own doing. We're taught that this great spiritual being rebelled out of envy, envy of humanity. He saw God's plan for the human race. He saw that God's grace and Mercy was to raise the human, the human race above the dignity of even the angels, the greatest of his creatures. In fact, what he rebelled against was Christmas, the birth of the God-man who took his flesh from the Virgin Mary. These creatures of clay would be elevated to something far beyond anything that angels would ever be given. This great angel, the greatest of God's creatures, Lucifer, was so taken, was so fascinated with the, his exalted nature that the thought of taking a lower place to anyone other than God was an insult. He saw the exalted place of human beings united to God. He was filled with resentment and envy. And so instead of surrendering to that plan, he set about enslaving those he was meant to serve 
and degrading those he was meant to honor. That's the nature of the war that we're born into. And with that lie, with that act of rebellion, he brought a third of the other angels with him. And from that point on, he takes on new names, new names that are derived from his tactics and his strategies, his forms of attack. Jesus calls him the ruler of this world. He calls him a murderer, calls him the father of lies. Elsewhere in the New Testament, he is the prince of the power of the air. He's a roaring lion prowling about looking for someone to devour. The evil one, the father of lies, the accuser, the divider. We're going to focus on just two of those names based on two of those tactics about the war, the spiritual war that is being fought against us to enslave and degrade us. But in order to grasp these, we want to go back to the story of the fall, the biblical story of Adam and Eve who were tempted and who gave into that temptation and so committed the original sin that now affects us all. We know that Adam and Eve were placed in a garden of paradise to dwell there in harmony, that they were provided with everything that they needed. There was one prohibition, there was one command that they were given, not to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Now the scriptures are using the language of this fall in in a mythical way. That is, they're expressing in concrete terms universal truths. And what this means, this prohibition about the fruit of the knowledge, fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, is that when you eat something, you, in a sense, make it your own. You have command over it. You have mastery over it. And so this language expresses the prohibition against eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is a prohibition against making ourselves sovereign over good and evil. That is, in fact, God's job. No one else can assume that authority without rebelling against God. And so the serpent, not long after creation is complete, the serpent introduces a doubt into the minds of Adam and Eve. It places a suspicion in their hearts. The serpent asks Eve, did did God tell you not to eat the fruit of any of the trees of the garden? Eve responds, no, he simply prohibited us from eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we shouldn't do so lest we die. The serpent responds with a very clever deception, saying what is technically true, but that leads to their downfall. He says, in fact, if you eat the fruit of that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will not die. In other words, God has withheld something from you to keep you in your place. Something that were you to take it for yourself would make you happier. God isn't a good father, says the serpent. You can't trust him. 
Look after yourselves. Take what seems good to you rather than receive what is good from your father. And so that suspicion is introduced and they have a choice to make. Do we persevere and trust or do we respond to this temptation and take for ourselves what seems good? Now, Adam and Eve could look around to the rest of all of that garden, that perfect paradise, well-ordered, harmonious, and see evidence at every turn of the goodness of their father. There was no sin, no death, no injustice, no suffering in the world to darken their minds or distract them from this truth. Yet, so they chose. Eve took the fruit, ate of it, and gave it to her husband. And as a consequence of this, not as a punishment, not as an arbitrary crackdown on disobedient children, they lose their life as a consequence. As naturally as a child who reaches out to touch a hot stove receives a burn, despite being warned not to touch. So indeed, Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden for their lack of trust in their good father. From then on, for the rest of history to the present day until the end, the fundamental temptation will be the same. Treat your father with suspicion. Reach out and take for yourself what seems good to you rather than waiting to receive it from your good father. And now the world we dwell in, no longer a paradise, is replete with evidence reinforcing that lie. Namely, the effects of sin that have propagated through God's well-ordered creation as the result of that rebellion. And this is the power of the biblical story. This is what we mean when we say the Bible uses mythical language to tell these stories. It's not about what happened back then as a, as a historical event alone. It's about what's always happening at every time and place with every person. The serpent is still very much alive and whispering his deceptions and his manipulations to us. Again and again, that question is provoked in our hearts. Where is this supposedly good God providing for all of our needs in the midst of all of this suffering? He's nowhere. He doesn't care. He's silent. Be done with him. Take for, take for yourself what you need and be happy. Now, this lie shows up in many different ways according to the different names that our enemy has taken. But I'd like to just highlight two, two in particular that are particularly common and shed God's light on them. First is the accuser. The word Satan literally means accuser. It's the word taken from courtroom uh, terminology, referring to the prosecutor in the courtroom. Prosecutor is the one who brings the case against you. Satan accuses us, first luring us in to commit sin with the deception that it's just a little, a little disobedience. And then, as soon as we commit that sin, turns on us and flings that sin back in our face and says, how dare you? How could you? Look at what you are. 
Look at what a failure you are, what a scumbag you are, what a piece of human garbage you are for having done that. How can you live with yourself? Your sin is what's most important about you. That's who you are. And so now, believing that lie about ourselves, we introduce a division. I present one aspect of myself to the world outside, and I keep the real me, what I've come to believe is the real me, hidden. Because I believe if anyone really saw me for who I am, they would want nothing to do with me. It's a place of terrible isolation. This lie is used on many of us in various situations in which we find ourselves, but it's particularly used against people who have experienced abuse or trauma. If you've worked with any of those people or have heard their stories, you often will hear them say, I came to believe that I was responsible for the things that happened to me. That's the liar, the accuser, flinging these things back in our faces and saying, that's who you are. Or many other instances where victims, especially children, will be suffering in some way at the hands of someone and, and can't, can't save themselves, can't preserve themselves from that situation. And they see that their loved ones appear not to know or to care. And they're told, you can't trust anyone. No one really cares about you. Resent them. Stay far from them. Don't trust them. And so, from an initial source of suffering, greater and greater and greater forms of suffering are multiplied. The second way, the second way that the, that the enemy attacks us and draws us into enslavement and degradation is through flattery. Flattery is a particular way of affirming someone in order to get something out of them. It's a twisting of the beautiful act of honoring and affirming someone, which is, which is an excellent thing, a virtue, to see goodness in someone and to, and to spontaneously or even with purpose speak it aloud, say it to them, and affirm the goodness that you see in another person. Flattery, on the other hand, twists that, and it makes it a manipulation. It's a compliment with an intention to extract And the way the enemy uses this, the flatterer uses this, is to say, you've been very good for a long time. You've been working hard. Or you've had a lot of bad things happen to you. You've endured a great deal. Maybe, maybe it's time that you had a little relief. A little escape. And there at hand is the temptation. Whatever it might be for you. He knows. He studies you. He knows your weaknesses. The bottle. The screen. The casino. The hookup. Whatever it is, he flatters us into indulging those things and finding comfort and consolation in them. And then, of course, 
no comfort or consolation is to be found. And so we cooperate in our own degradation. These are the tactics of our enemy, among many others. Believing these things leaves us into a place of enslavement where our wills are constrained and our minds are darkened and ultimately to a place of final destruction. We often talk about sin as the act that separates us from God as if we were merely at a distance from him, but I think a much better way of understanding sin is that it transfers us from God's kingdom into Satan's. We go from being under the lordship of God to the dominion of our enemy. Then and there, that there's no neutral territory, no in-between place where we can decide later which kingdom we will belong to. Sin yanks us from the one to the other. It's important to know these things and to be clear about them, to shed God's light on them. But that's not enough. Knowing isn't enough. We have to have the power to do something about it. And that's precisely what we don't have. And the way of maybe grasping that is this. Sin is slavery. Slavery to someone who hates us and wants us degraded and destroyed. And once someone is in sin, all subsequent generations that they give birth to are also in sin. The terrible history of slavery, of course, teaches us this lesson. As unjust as it is, in human terms, the fact is, a child born to slaves is a slave. As one author has put it, describing this situation, no one is capable of being master of his or her own fate. Each of us is worked on by unconscious impulses of which we are not even aware and over which we have little control. No one is free in the domain of this world as it now is. Either we must live our lives in the clutches of these soul-destroying powers or we are delivered into the obedience of faith. So to be caught in slavery and degradation is by definition the condition of not being able to escape, not being able to be rescued. We need a savior. There's no other way out. If we could have rescued ourselves, it would mean that we had never been enslaved in the first place. We'd never been captured in the first place. So I believe this Advent, what this particular step is calling us to recognize is that Humanly speaking, our situation is hopeless. It's a grace for us to pray for, to ask for the gift of hopelessness. <laughs> Some of us are acutely aware of that hopelessness already. You might know some people who are caught in that whirlpool of hopelessness. The fact is, such persons are actually uniquely ready to receive 
the good news of a Savior. They don't conceal or anesthetize that awareness like many of the rest of us do in our daily lives. So if we don't experience that hopelessness or have never experienced it or no longer experience it, it would be something to ask God to give us. Despair for any hope apart from Christ. This this is a challenging and perhaps heavy way of approaching the celebration of Christmas, but I believe, the church believes, it's the only path to the real joy of Christmas because there we recognize the nature of our rescue, the nature of our rescuer, what is being done to draw us out of the kingdom of the one who wants us enslaved, degraded, and destroyed, to make us aware of the abyss that is at our side, and recognizing that there, before the grace of God, go I. And we don't hope to remain in that hopelessness by any means. So in the coming weeks, after having covered first being created as God's favored creatures in a harmonious and beautiful and good creation, having been born into a situation where a rebellious creature seeks to disorder and enslave the beauty of that creation, we'll take up in the coming weeks the nature of our rescue and what response we are to make. So that this Advent season, our faith might be robust, our faith might be deep, the faith in the gospel, so that together, as his holy people, we might be no longer unbelieving, but believe. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.